Hi, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 5 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, do consult the show notes for a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode. However, I will provide you with the usual teaser. In Spain, we looked at Ronald Koeman's tactical fallacies and assessed the extent to which the Dutchman's Barcelona legacy has been tarnished during his ill-fated time in charge at Camp Nou. In France, we were joined by the excellent Jeremy Smith to discuss the fruitful partnership between FC Metz and the Génération Foot Youth Academy in Senegal. We looked at why that collaboration has been so successful and discussed how the project is perceived generally by Metz fans. In Italy, we analysed some of the factors behind Atalanta's slow start to the season. Ladea are, of course, traditionally slow starters under Gian Piero Gasparini. And in Germany, we discussed the absence of nuanced move construction at Borussia Dortmund. Borussia Dortmund, of course, sit just a point off the top of the Bundesliga table, but for reasons which we discuss in the episode, we are not entirely convinced. We discussed all of those topics and so much more. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, follow at FFOps on Twitter or visit freelancefootballops.com. On now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe and well. Enjoy. Just before we came on air, we were comparing coffee mugs and Barlow's mug and my mug both had an animal on them, but Michael's mug sadly didn't. So he's the the odd one out on this occasion. He's now admiring his mug. Um, it, it is a lovely mug, but I don't know quite what the listeners will gain from that. I think they would much rather hear us chatting and analysing European football. Uh, Michael Jones is looking deep in thought there, admiring his mug still. How are you doing, Michael? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's from the Political Cartoon Society, it turns out. So I'm guessing it's some sort of satire. So if anybody's into that, by all means, check it out. But yeah, other than that, I'm fine, thank you. Okay, okay, Michael. Well, if uh, you want to start a satirical podcast looking at um, political mugs or satirical mugs, then feel free, but just make sure they're not released every second Friday. We don't want a clash there. Really, Barlow, do you have any podcast aspirations, any conglomerate growths in your sites? I've got quite enough going on, to be honest. Um, and my mug isn't quite as highbrow as Michael's, but yeah, I, I think I've, I've exhausted all my podcasting abilities on football, which is probably for the best because uh, you might not think I'm very knowledgeable about football, but I'm even less knowledgeable about everything else. So, uh, Barlow, you've done yourself a disservice there. I've, I've heard you speak in the pub and you speak well. 
Rooney Barlow's mug actually featured a lovely hedgehog. Uh, my mug featured a, a golden retriever sleeping on a, a tartan blanket. Um, all very wholesome. <laughs> if you are uh, interested in that, I'm sure most of you aren't. So we will move swiftly on to something which will probably be of more interest generally to our listeners, and that is the topic of Italian football. Tuesday gave us a dramatic night in Serie A. Inter Milan under new coach Simone Inzaghi came up against inform Fiorentina. La Viola, buoyed by the arrival of new coach Vincenzo Italiano, raced into the lead, but Inter's clinical second half display meant that they took all three points back to Milan. In light of this performance, Michael, how do you assess their title ambitions at this early stage? Yeah, I certainly think the title ambitions are starting to look stronger after they came through a stern test in Fiorentina, who have looked revitalised under Italiano. They've won three league games on the bounce beforehand. And whilst Inter Milan had, were unbeaten in the league coming into this game with three wins and a draw themselves, La Viola, I thought, were the first team who would try to go toe-to-toe with the Milan side. And thanks to the Tuscany team's positive approach, they got off to a great start. Riccardo Satila had given them the lead at half-time, but there was a great rally by Inter Milan in the second half, helped by a needless red card for new signing Nicola Gonzalez, who spoke previously about on the podcast a few times now. I think you guys first booking for something he said to the referee and then in response to that sarcastically applauded the referee and was sent off within an instant so make of that what you will quite a flamboyant way to go I guess but going back to Inter and looking at the strengths from this game and one of the things that was keeping them to getting into the lead and getting their second goal was through a set piece and that's been something that's been fundamental to Simone Inzaghi's team so far this season the additions of Hakan Chalanoglu and Edin Dzeko have been key to this, and they've been key to Inter's attack so far this season. They've got five goals from set pieces, the second of which was the one which gave them the lead, which came for a corner, and that's the highest in Serie A. And it also highlights the role played by a young player in Federico Di Marco, a 23-year-old Italian left-back who is playing left-wing back in this system, who spent the last 18 months on loan at Hellas Verona, this game really developed under the now Torino boss, Ivan Juric. And I guess a caveat of the five goals and the impression I'm trying to get across here is that this is a really free-flowing Inter Milan team that have so many ways of scoring at the moment. It is why they do look so potent going forwards. Scored 18 goals in total, so they're leading in most goal-scoring charts in Serie A right now after five games. But out of those, 11 have been in open play and key to this has been Nico Barella, who... As impressive as he was under Antonio Conte, he feels like he's got a new lease of life and a bit more of an attacking license to be a creator under Simone Inzaghi, which for a player of his ability is such an exciting prospect. He's got his lead in the goal-creating actions charts this season with six and also the assists with four. And I think when you combine this with Lautaro Martinez relishing a main role, Edin Dzeko, like I said, is looking true business, less mobile, of course, but still deadly in front of goal. And Joaquin Correa also to come off the bench into Milan is suddenly looking a really dangerous outfit. And even if they're maybe in trouble in the game, like they were against Fiorentina, which I'll come on to in a second, they have so many options, despite the summer of upheaval that we discussed a few weeks ago that they've had, they're coming into this into a really strong position. And 
I think just going on to the concerns that I might have, that I do have over Inter Milan really for this season, I, I think that Fiorentina showed that they could potentially be exposed against higher pressing opposition and ones with higher quality. And we all know about their struggles in Europe in the past few seasons, and that could come on show again. They lost to Real Madrid, and they're likely to struggle against Shakhtar Donetsk's high press. But I thought that during the Fiorentina game, they were outnumbered by their attackers. And one concern has also been that that means more shots will be faced towards Samir Handanovic. He's been one of Serie A's best goalkeepers in the 21st century. But I think it's important to note that he made a huge save versus Lariola, which on the whole is another big bonus for what I'd say is Italy's most free-flowing team right now. And I'd say let's enjoy them whilst we can. And I think they've got tougher tests to come, but they're good signs, really good signs so far from Inter Milan. Yeah, you spoke of one of those those tougher tests. Next Saturday, they host Atalanta, another team in Nerazzurri, uh, who also won on Tuesday night, defeating Sassuolo 2-1. Giampiero Gasparini's men have, have never been fast out the blocks and thanks to a comparatively quiet summer compared to their counterparts, they have flown slightly under the radar. Given their slow start, there had been issues surrounding La Dea, but those issues have been partly pacified following consecutive victories this week. Would you say that, or would you agree in saying that the Bergamo side are back on track or do you share the concerns held by supporters, Michael? Yeah, I think it is hard to tell with Atalanta. Like you said, they've been traditionally slow starters. And I think the table, in a sense, is almost quite deceptive now. We're coming onto it with Atalanta on the 10 points after five games, which is, you know, a fine tally at this stage of the season. In the past two seasons, they've been on uh, 10 or 9. So again, I think the table's quite deceptive in that sense, but it's more reflective of their energy levels and how closely they're playing, playing to their potential, I think. And if you look deeper into the results they had, they really toiled to a victory on the opening day against uh, Torino. They won that 2-1 courtesy of a stoppage time goal. And Torino probably created the better chances during that game. Then Atalanta drew against Bologna, lost to Fiorentina, which we've spoken about previously. And then in match day four, they came up against Serie A's whipping boys so far in Salernitana, who... I think if it was not for Atalanta's new signing in goal, Juan Musso, it could have easily been a different outcome. Salernitana actually really enjoyed the game against Atalanta. I think most people expected a bit of a battering from Ladea, but it just wasn't the case. And Salernitana really held their own. And it was only the individual quality of Atalanta which kind of got them out of that game. And it's not something we've always said about them. It's, you know, they've always been so functional as a team, but... I think on a positive note, they were more impressive in their victory last night versus Sassuolo. Although they still conceded chances, I'd take note of the second goal, which in contrast to the Salernitana game, it was vintage one-touch team move by Ladea, which led to Davide Zappacosta's first league goal for the team since originally departing in 2015. But I think another reason for the slow start could be the international involvement as well. I think during 2020, uh, Euro 2020, sorry, there was a period where you consider the contributions of Joaquim uh, Mailer, Robin Gersons, Matteo Piscina and Alexei Maranchuk. And it felt like there was an Atalanta player scoring an almost every night of the competition, especially during the group stages. But I mean, when you throw into uh, the mix, Atalanta's key forward Colombian duo, Luis Muriel and David Zapata, in addition to 
Musa, who is involved with the Argentina squad. And it's been quite a taxing summer on Atalanta's players on top of, you know, this health lava campaign we've had over the past year or two with the pandemic thrown in. And that with Papu Gomez's departure in January has put a lot of pressure, especially on Atalanta going forwards. And I think it has started to show a bit this season. And that's something that they'll be looking to sort. I think one of the things that we've got going for them in Asina and Roma Malinowski is they've got two players in those creative positions that do have moments of brilliance within them all the time. However, there are other problems there. And I think one thing that we've maybe overlooked is the diminishing role of Jose Pilicic as well, which is a concern I have given that when we first started the podcast, I think we were looking at the best player in Serie A, but now he's almost playing a mm-hmm. substitute role or, you know, he, he will not, it, you will not get 90 minutes out of him. Not that you ever really always did, but even 60 minutes of his full intensity is very much playing in flashes at the moment. I think what, people and maybe what the perception about Atalanta is is that I think we need to be careful when we're evaluating what they can do going forwards I think the perception that um, Atalanta are building an improving squad year on year and that eventually they're going to be right in a title race is maybe a misleading one when you look at the situations of Gomez, Ilicic and other key players such as Romero that have departed out and others like who have departed over the past few years and I think instead what their sustainable model allows them to do is prepare themselves as well as they possibly could given their resources. And I again think Atalanta's priority right now will be securing top four and they're in a fine place to do that. Uh, in terms of a title push, I just think they're too far away at the moment. But they've got both Milan sides in the next two league games. So huge tests away and I'm sure we'll get a bit of a better idea. Maybe if they beat both of them, then maybe they're going to be thrown into the title equation a bit more. Yeah, certainly a, a loss when you think of Ilicic and the way that he's declined. The team that they beat, Sassuolo, also went a summer or underwent a summer of transition after losing their progressive and very popular coach, Roberto De Serbi, to Shakhtar Donetsk in May. In came Alessio Dionisi for him, who guided newcomers Empoli to promotion last term. Despite his prior success, the emerging coach has struggled to emulate his winning formula since an opening day victory over Hellas Verona. When we factor in three, three defeats in a row, amidst the departures of Locatelli, Manuel Locatelli and Francesco Caputo, are Sassuolo still worthy of our considerable attention? Yeah, I mean, aside, you know, it's interesting, we've just spoken about Atalanta have been that team for the neutrals, and I think second to them have often been Sassuolo, thanks to the style of play De Zerbi's implemented over the last few years. And his departure, even though he never left with any individual achievements from his time at Sassuolo should not be understated they were you know just goal difference away from qualifying for Europe last season playing some sensational football with a team created on a shoestring budget when you compare it to the likes of Roma who finished just above them but hopefully we'll get a bit more of an idea of what Dionisi is going to do but my my only impressions of him so far is that the blueprint seems to be a bit too close to Deserbian Dionisi's maybe just trying to emulate Deserbi too closely if anything Currently, they've been playing a 4-2-3-1, which directly continues from what Deserbi did during his time last season, rather than the 4-3-1-2 that Dionysi used at Empoli, which led to their promotion. And I think maybe key to this has been the departure of Locatelli, like you said, Barlow. I think, although it always seemed inevitable, Sassuolo's quest for a 
replacement has not maybe convinced all because that's come in the form of Davide Fratesi, an exciting Italy under-21 midfielder for sure. He has looked good on occasion. He was the one that he spent last season on loan at Monza, gaining invaluable professional experience off the likes of Mario Balotelli and Kevin Prince-Boateng. But it goes without saying <laughs> that he's got, Fratesi's got huge boots to fill in Locatelli's. And maybe this has been the reason, with there being more emphasis, I think, on a 4 3 one 2 in your central midfield, that Dionisi's been reluctant to play that formation so far. But they have really struggled in the last few games. They... Looked a bit better in their defeat to Atalanta the other night, but the game before that was a 1-0 defeat to Torino and they could have lost by three or four goals during that game. They were really lucky to get away with just such a narrow defeat. But I would like to see the manager be a bit bolder in the next few games, uh, like we said about the formation. Looking at Caputo's departure, this has kind of paved the way for Gianluca Scamacca, a guy who was on loan at Genoa last season, and Giacomo Raspadori both made their Italy debuts this year to create a really exciting young partnership and I think this formation would just be perfect for that but it will take time the good thing for them is that they've got Salernitana, Venezia and Genoa in the next five games so they will have chance to pick up points and hopefully there will be signs of a bit of a turnaround there but at the moment I think it's with for those two strikers alone we should still be paying a bit of attention to Sassuolo. Thank you Michael fascinating and eloquent as always We will take a very brief break before returning to discuss Borussia Dortmund's start to the Bundesliga season. We'll be right back. Nach Deutschland, Borussia Dortmund sit just a point behind Bayern Munich at the top of the Bundesliga table after having picked up 12 points from a possible 15 in the league. They also eased through the first round of the DFB Pokal and registered an important win away at Besiktas in the Champions League. Under new manager Marco Rosa, it looks therefore like they have made a really quite impressive start. And yet, you're not fully convinced, are you, Ali? Well, I don't think I've ever been fully convinced by <laughs> Borussia Dortmund, but I think we have to draw attention to the fact that their start to the season in the league, in the cup and in the Champions League is really quite deceptive. Firstly, what I will say is quite surprisingly, perhaps, given that Marco Rosa is known as a coach, or at least the arguments made that he is a coach who is quite tactically astute. So with that in mind and those arguments in mind, it really is quite surprising that I think in the early stages of the season, we've seen from Dortmund a lack of a nuanced tactical approach, particularly in the offensive phase. It feels very much to me like they're reliant on spontaneous individual brilliance rather than anything premeditated or anything too extensively pre planned. And I'm not sure how sustainable that is over a full season, particularly if you're looking to genuinely challenge Bayern Munich. Now, I mentioned how Marco Rose is quite often regarded as a manager who's capable of implementing advanced tactical systems. So that's why this all seems quite surprising. He's not really what you would call a vibes coach, someone who just lets the players go and and do what they can do with a sort of laissez-faire approach, if you like that 
certainly in my eyes and in the eyes of others, isn't what Marco Rosa does. And I mentioned the phrase, a vibes coach. They mentioned that phrase on the excellent Talking Foosball podcast. And I thought that summed it up. Marco Rosa isn't a vibes coach, or at least we don't think that he's a vibes coach. But it very much feels like the players are being given licence to go and do as they please with very little tactical influence from the coach, um, which I don't think at the top level is sustainable or very wise. Give your players a degree of autonomy, give them a degree of that ability to to do something special, but you have to have advanced tactical systems in place if you want to succeed and if you want to challenge at the very top. So I spoke there about the sort of offensive phase, but also in defence, Dortmund still look really vulnerable uh, in particular, they look poor from set pieces. Union Berlin and Hoffenheim both capitalised on that when they recently visited the Signal Iduna Park. And it does look like whenever you're watching Dortmund that they could concede from just about any set piece anywhere near their goal, whether that be a, an indirect free kick or a direct free kick or a corner they just look as if they really aren't too sure in themselves at defending set pieces. And teams will sense that. Hoffenheim sensed it, Union Berlin sensed it, and other teams will sense it. They've conceded 11 goals generally, meaning that their defence is the fifth worst in the league currently. And obviously, like with any of our analysis in these early season episodes, we do only have a small sample size, but that small sample size can still give us some sort of indication as to how the rest of the season might go. We can obviously use it as a definitive source, but we can absolutely take information from it and and try and learn from it. And the early signs are that Dortmund will struggle from set pieces. That won't come as anything new to anyone who's watched Dortmund over the last few years defensively. They've always really looked suspect. They've never really looked like a team who can go up 3-0 and consider a game over and done with. There's always that feeling that maybe they'll concede one goal and then maybe they'll concede a second goal quickly after that, even if that doesn't materialise. There's just always that sense that something like that could happen. I spoke about how the start of the season has been quite deceptive. I think it's probably the most suitable word to describe Dortmund. So I'm I'm going to take the XG figures and the XG against figures. Um, In terms of their XG which they've outscored by four goals. Only Leverkusen have outscored their expected goals by more. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, interestingly enough, looking at their XG against, they've conceded four more goals than their XG against figure suggests they should have conceded. So they're exceeding their expected goals and they're exceeding their expected goals against, which really suggests to me that, that we're not seeing the real Dortmund, at least in terms of what the data suggests should be the real Dortmund. Only Stuttgart have exceeded their expected goals against by a larger number than Dortmund. So they're second in terms of exceeding their XG and they're second in terms of exceeding their expected goals against. Now, perhaps Dortmund will prove to be an outlier of sorts whose goal scored and goals conceded fly in the face of what the data suggests for the duration of the season. But I would doubt that they would do so. Certainly, 
to the extent we've seen so far, at least. And there's a reason why so many teams use XG and XG against figures, certainly as part of a wider bank of resources. And it's because it is reliable. There will, of course, be exceptions to the rule, but that goes with any data set. There will always be exceptions and outliers, but the data, by and large, is the rule. That's why it exists. So, obviously, you can look at it on the one hand and say, ah, well, you know, they're conceding more goals than you would expect, so why focus on the fact that they're scoring um, more goals than you would expect? Surely, if, if it all levels out, then they'll be in exactly the same place, technically speaking. And maybe, yes, you could make that argument, but perhaps it's the pessimist in me who thinks that Dortmund's attack is more likely to tail off than their defensive numbers are to realign with what you would expect in terms of expected goals against, i.e. that they're more likely to score fewer goals than they are to concede fewer goals, if that makes sense. I'm confusing myself here. I'm, t- I'm trying to, to explain it as clearly as possible, but I Paul was laughing there. Does that make sense, Paul? Am I there or thereabouts? Are you, are you I think I'm just me? about there with you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, um, if this is beginning to look like a Christopher Nolan film on podcast, then uh, I do apologise. But basically, what I'm trying to say is that I think it's more likely that Dortmund will score fewer goals than it is they will improve their defence and they'll concede fewer goals than they are now, if that makes sense. I think that just about makes sense. And, and the, on, yeah, <laughs> you, you got it. You got it. Good. Okay. Right. If you're still with me, I would like to just quote Marco Royce himself. He said that we can't always score three or four goals to win. And that quote came after the 4-3 win over Leverkusen on match day four. It's an obvious statement to make, but it's true. And the fact that we saw it again at the weekend against Union Berlin, when they win 4-2, having been on easy street, it felt like they were then brought back to 3-2 and they required a moment of brilliance from Erling Haaland to ensure the three points to win 4-2. And that brings me on to one of my final points on Dortmund. Even with the supreme genius of Erling Haaland, it just doesn't feel like Dortmund's start to the season is sustainable. Haaland himself is arguably the case in point here. Individual brilliance prevailing over cohesive and well-organised move construction in the final third. Now, I say that Harland himself is more than capable of forming part of an attacking system which is well-defined and tactically informed. Harland is excellent at all of that. Think back to his goal earlier in the year against Leipzig with the excellent build-up play, the swift pass out wide, the movement to get into the middle, and then Sancho's cross met by Harland who had taken up an excellent position at the back post. That was move construction, arguably at its finest. It was majestic, and Harland played a pivotal role there. So Harland's more than capable of forming part of that tactically informed system. He's more than capable of the individual moments of brilliance. So why not fully maximise his potential on both sides there? Just as well, I will just mention the fact that Marco Rose may well look to implement a 4-4-2 diamond quite regularly at Borussia Dortmund based on the small sample size available to us at the start of the season, it looks not so much that he's wedded to the system as he's flirting with the system. We've seen it on two or three occasions. And when we've seen that system, we've seen a few 
issues. We've seen a midfield imbalance. We've seen a lack of width, as you would expect with a diamond. And we've seen Dortmund really struggling to play effectively in transition. Now, I'm not sure if that's symptomatic of the diamond formation or if it's symptomatic of the way that Dortmund are playing generally under Marco Rosa. But regardless, these are areas of concern, I think. Do check out Rhys Desmond's recent article on the Bundesliga Daily website for an excellent analysis of the flaws of Dortmund's 4-4-2 diamond under Marco Rose. It's an excellent piece and it goes into really quite impressive details. So do go and check that out. Now, my closing remark, and I promise this is my closing remark on Dortmund, is to ask, with Bayern Munich looking as devastatingly impressive as they currently do under Julian Nagelsmann, does it really matter how sustainable Dortmund starts the season is? Perhaps that's too defeatist on my part, but again, it's it's something to consider. In any event, the Bundesliga produced another marvellous weekend of football and it will continue to do so for the rest of the season. Now we are going to head to France. We're going to speak to French football expert Jeremy Smith, who's going to tell us all about FC Metz and the Generation Foot Youth Academy in Senegal. We'll be right back. I'm delighted to be joined by French football expert Jeremy Smith to discuss the fruitful partnership between Metz and the Generation Foot Youth Academy in Senegal. Jeremy has a soft spot for Metz and so is well placed to discuss the club's relationship with the academy which was founded in Dakar at the start of the 21st century. We could, of course, focus on a winless start to the season for a porous Mets side, but we've planned for some time now to discuss the role played by Le Clinat and the Generation Foot Academy in producing, nurturing and giving a platform to promising young talent. To date, the collaboration has seen the likes of Sadio Mane, Papi Sisse, Ismail Assar and Habib Diallo make the move from Africa to Europe. So, Jeremy, could you maybe add some historical context to this productive partnership and perhaps explain why it has maybe been so successful? Um, yeah, as you said, it's a, it's a, a youth academy that, that began in Senegal, I think it was in, in 2000, by um, Madi Touré, who had a sort of short professional career in France. Um, and the idea, I know it's kind of what a lot of academies profess to do, but the idea was sort of not only to kind of develop um, sort of young, talented footballers, but also ensure that they're getting the kind of good education around it. And also that from his own experience, he wanted to make sure that um, these players were sort of getting, I guess, a little bit of sort of maybe business now, so the right kind of advice in terms of, you know, contracts, maybe making sure that they're not sort of hoodwinked by dodgy agents, that kind of thing. So they're, they're getting all the support, not only in terms of improving their football, but making sure that they've got all the foundations off the pitch so that if hopefully their talent comes through and maybe they're scouted by big clubs in Europe that, you know, they're, they're, they're really in the right conditions to make that switch. Um, Mess got involved 
I think possibly originally around 2003, I think other clubs had been interested, but but never sort of sealed the deal with Generation Foot. Um, so MES did, I think it was at first it was short term, but it's been extended a couple of times now, most recently sort of, um, I think around this time last year, actually, and with a 10 year extension. So, um, you know, really sort of long term partnership continuing well into well into the 21st century between um, MES and Generation Foot. Um, and the idea is basically that MES provide a lot of the financial support, a lot of the infrastructure. Um, they send coaches, youth team coaches across as well. And in return, they kind of have sort of first refusal on a couple of players a year. And as you said, obviously, not every player comes it come, that comes across as successful, but certainly there's been a few standout ones over the years. And obvious names are, um, as you said, Sadio Mane, definitely. Jeffra Sacco did very well for MES, got them promoted a couple of promotions. Uh, Ismail Assar, who went on to Rennes and then Watford and, you know, Liverpool are constantly linked with him. And then the next one, who obviously just, just signed for Spurs, but is staying at MES for, for the season, is... Um, Pat Matasar. So definitely it's it's something that's been sort of very fruitful for MES and also for fruitful for Generation Foot, who are, although just a youth academy and a, a sort of a team in the lower divisions in Senegal, have actually risen to the top division and even won the league a couple of times, which, which shows, um, I guess, how MES's support on the financial and infrastructural and coaching side has benefited them as well. I should also mention Habib Diallo, who I think was um, top scorer, possibly for Generation Foot, but certainly for Mess once or twice. And at the moment, Ibrahim Inian, who's at Mess and still waiting to see how his career goes. He started last season brilliantly, had six goals in six games, and then um, did his ligaments. And he hasn't really got back since he's sort of got back to full fitness. He hasn't got back to his same kind of form. And as you said, with Messi's start of the season, we're praying he gets there soon because otherwise we're in serious trouble. Indeed, indeed. And Javi Diallo, of course, was the thorn in the side of Mess uh, last Friday in the derby is Strasbourg, my beloved Strasbourg, uh, <laughs> won 3 0 in that one and a result that felt like a long time coming. But I won't, I won't dwell on that too long for, for your sakes, Jeremy. Uh, you, mentioned, right, <laughs> you mentioned Pat Matar Saar. Now, he's another notable graduate from the Generation Foot Academy. And you mentioned his move to Spurs. So just to give the listener a wee bit more context, after making 22 league and appearances for Mess last season, the 19-year-old midfielder left Eastern France to sign for Tottenham Hotspur at the end of August before returning to Sad Saint-Symphoyen on loan. The managing director at Spurs, Fabrizio Paratici, described the Senegalese international as one of the most talented in Europe. So why should we be so excited about Pat Matarsar and how would you describe his playing style, Jeremy? I think he's he's another one of these midfielders that, that France are producing quite a few of at the moment. I mean, you know, Pogba obviously comes to mind, but people like Chouameni and, and Kamavinga, of course, as well, who genu genuinely sort of can do it all, has got the potential to sort of fit into any midfield position and, and become potentially world-class in that position. Um, so Mess fans had already sort of heard good things about him for the last couple of years. Um, he, and I think we were waiting... We, 
his if you look at his record for Senegal youth teams it's absolutely fantastic and just look at some of the clips the long range free kicks and shots and controlling the game line breaking passes comfortable with the ball at his feet really can do it all and I think we weren't necessarily expecting him to break through as quickly as he did at Mess but as you said um, last year from when Antonetti kind of came back to replace Onyor as the as the head coach of Mess he sort of um, I think decided to switch a lot more to, to the younger players and Saar basically became a fixture in the team. Um, for the Senegal youth team, he's often played as a 10. Last year for Messi, he was often sort of filling in more as a defensive midfielder, maybe a six. For me, he's an eight. He's a proper box-to-box, sort of tall, rangy, um, kind of... He's strong, he, although he looks a little bit wiry. I think he's quite a strong player. He's got good hold-up play. Um, nice range of passing, as I said, a good long shot, decent in the air, really can do it all. And for me, I think he should be focusing on box to box. And that's kind of been one of the issues for any Spurs fans who've been watching him this year. They may be unimpressed so far. I think the problem is maybe firstly the pressure of the exposure that he's now under having made that, that sort of big transfer. Um, secondly, the fact that he's playing in a team that's not doing very well at the moment. But I think also, at, so far, Mess haven't really been playing with any kind of creative player, no number 10. Belaya will hopefully return to the team tonight, but he hasn't been there yet. Bassi hasn't really settled into the team yet. And a lot of the sort of onus for playmaking has fallen on Saar's shoulders. And although I said he can play as a 10, certainly his sort of professional career so far hasn't um, involved much of that and I think it's it's far too soon for any club certainly a top flight club to be expecting him to kind of do all the sort of creative running um, so and particularly in a team that's struggling anyway so I think that's been it's sort of held mess back and it's held him back but hopefully maybe from tonight we'll see Bulaya come in which will enable Saar to kind of drop back a little bit and do what he does best. I mean, again, an, another sort of example of his skill, if you if you see his, I think it's his debut for Senegal, just a fantastic pass that sort of cut out like five or six opposing players and put Sadio Mane through on goal and he actually hit the bar when arguably he should have scored. Um, but it just shows kind of, you know, the great temperament and the skill and the vision that he's got. So I think Spurs fans should be excited. Mess fans are gutted. It's actually a bit like Diallo going to Strasbourg last year that Mess fans aren't, that Mess aren't getting a little bit more money. Um, but in the end, it wasn't the worst deal in the world considering he's, we've got another season of him on loan. I know, um, obviously, I'm, I'm stuck here in London, but and there are a lot of Mess fans who are sort of worried that they would never actually see him in the flesh. So I think it's really good for his development and for the fans that that he gets to stay for one more year. But um, yeah, hopefully he'll continue his learning curve and, and do a great job once he moves to England as well. Absolutely, Jeremy. Now, earlier on, you touched on this, but last October, Mess signed a 10-year contract extension with Generation Foot paving the way for continued collaboration between the two parties, mutually beneficial collaboration, as you mentioned, Jeremy. Ostensibly, this would appear to be a fully pragmatic move, um, given that people have made the argument that the partnership has been quite instrumental to the club's first division status in recent years, to the club's league and status in 
recent years. But how do Mess fans themselves view the relationship? And what do you think the future holds for the FC Mess Times Generation Foot project? I think it's it's mostly positive. Um, as we said, it's not sort of stellar names every year. But I think sort of four or five players kind of making it to Premier League, for example, I think is a really good return. Um, and obviously there's a lot of players who've done a decent job um, for Mess or maybe sort of made less trumpeted moves, but gone to, I don't know, Germany and um, afterwards and still built a decent career. People like Falu Diagne, for example. Um, I should also mention Papi Sisse, um, who, who also did a good job when he moved to the Premier League. So um, certainly I think, Overall, it's a very successful partnership. I think the only sort of reticence that a lot of Mess fans have is that Mess have always been one of those clubs in France, as much by necessity as anyone else, as anything else, who've had a very good sort of youth system and been able to bring through a lot of young players through their youth system at the club, who've then gone on to, if not sort of huge money-making sign transfers for Mess, you know, it's, they've done a great job for Mess, um, hopping back to the 90s where, where Mess were genuine title contenders, and then they've gone on to maybe bigger things. Um, the only concern is that the focus has been so much on Generation Foot that there aren't that many maybe French players or players coming through the sort of the Mess youth system in the city if you know what i mean like they're coming across mm -hmm. still young and still going through the youth system at mess but coming across almost fully formed from from senegal and i think a few fans would would feel more comfortable with with a few more genuinely coming through maybe from france um you know the, the, it's the african cup of nations coming up again in in january and I mean, it's it's literally potentially pretty much the whole mess first team could be out. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I know in France, you have to be very sensitive about, um, I'm not talking quotas or anything like that, but I know there's been controversies before about, you know, there's a lot of African players coming through and are they French, are they not French? You know, questions of passports and types of players they are. I'm not sort of touching on that at all. I think it's just that it would be nice to have a bit more balance so that, I mean, like I said, literally the whole team is going to be sort of wiped out, not as in they'll be representing their countries in January. And I don't know who Mess will be fielding at that time because they have so few players who either have come through that system or Mess have bought internally. So Generation Foot is definitely a hugely positive partnership um, and you know, far more pros than cons. It just sometimes feels like maybe Mess are putting all their eggs in one basket and, mm -hmm. and it would be nice to see a little bit more balance and back to what they used to do very well themselves as well. Um, I know, you know, they should get the credit because it's some of their youth coaches and it's some of their money that are bringing these young players through. But why not do some of that at home as well as in Senegal um, just to make sure that, that there's that balance? Absolutely, Jeremy, that balance would seem like quite a sensible and practical thing to aspire to. Jeremy, thank you so much for giving up your time. I'll let you head off. Mess about to play PSG. We're recording this on Wednesday night before release on Friday morning. But thank you so much for your time, Jeremy. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Excellent. Okay, speak soon. Thanks, Jeremy. 54 crosses, only 14 of which were successful. It took a last-minute equaliser from Ronald Araujo to save Ronald Koeman some redness in the face, but there were still plenty of blushes in Barcelona as they drew 1-1 with Granada. This came directly after a damning defeat to Bayern Munich in a game which finished 3-0 but left an impression not markedly better than the 8-2 loss did last August. The Barcelona team is depleted and there are significant injuries. But why are those not fair excuses for Kuhlman to deploy at the moment, Barlow? I think we could unpack this in so many ways and starting with the crosses there. Kuhlman said that it was from a cross that Barcelona managed to get their late equaliser against Granada, which is a fair point. But if you actually look at the the play where it happens and it's Gavi, who's, who's one of the young talents, just 17 years of age, who crosses it for Alco, but that was deliberate it was it was more of a pass than a cross for me and you could see him pick out exactly where he wanted the ball to go and where he wanted it to land on Araujo's head and that was one of the few deliberate things that happened in that game because Barcelona went into that game without a plan and without much structure at all and this is really something pretty remarkable these last two games the Bayern match for me is when he lost the dressing room when he lost this team because he sent them out in a state of fear and as soon as Bayern got hold of the game and got hold of the ball really the game was over the contest was was gone and many remarked that it looked like a training session that's because these Barcelona players were playing scared and there was no hope of winning it was about damage limitation and Kuman himself said well, what can I do this is this is what there is and if we'd been more open then we would have lost by more but for me it's it's not about being more open it's about having having an idea a plan a structure of, and a way of doing things that you've practiced and I think it's almost historic because I don't think anybody was really talking about Kuman getting the sack but in the space of two matches he's managed to almost certainly confirm himself as being being re- relieved of his duties in the upcoming international break for me. And he essentially set up two teams so so badly that he'll lose his job over them. The reason that they can't do more is because there is no set plan. There's no sort of strategy against Granada. And, and he said that they scored early and then they defended deep with, with 11 men and the spaces aren't there, then that's what you have to do is throw balls into the box. But that's not true because we've seen Barcelona play against teams dropping deep for donkey's years since uh, Frank Rijkaard came in and, and they were playing good football then and even more so in the Pep Guardiola era. And yes, you don't have Messi to patch over the cracks, but it's it's just a poor excuse. And I've never, I've never seen a team look so lost as for what they're meant to do. And if you look at this Barcelona side, it's not built for that. And you could see that by the way that Gerard Piquet, Ronald Araujo and Luke de Jong were the people that were were being sort of acting as the target man. And only Luke de Jong is a specialist in that sense. But I, I just, I've never seen a team so poorly suited to playing that style, trying to play it. I mean, you've got Gavi there. He's tiny, 17-year-old. You've got Serginho Dest, who 
his crossing throughout that game was lamentable to to say the least and it's just a selection of players that aren't built to play like that and so if you ask them to defend deep and to throw crosses in if you ask them to defend deep in a structure you're gonna have to train that and you saw that against Bayern they just didn't quite know how to behave and what exactly to do with the ball when they got it because normally they're used to looking up and they're used to seeing people ahead of them and there was a run sort of last season of about five, six games where Barcelona drew with PSG and that was after the after the 4-0, but they really looked good in that game. And then there was a couple of games against Sevilla. There was a couple matches where they really looked like they had a structure, they had pressing and they had a way of playing that could have led to something more and building a team. And the way they've dropped off ever since that sort of, international break that came after that is is remarkable i don't think i've ever seen a team go from once i think they beat real sociedad 5-1 or 5-2 in the game before that international break in about april time last year i don't think i've ever seen a team drop off quite so dramatically since then because they threw away the title ronald kuman in pre-season makes a huge deal about the defense and he, he says this is what we need to improve we know we're not going to score as many goals without messi for instance and and there's just been no evidence of it. There's been no no set plan. And I think I think the most chastening thing about this Barcelona side is you see them against Bayern and you see them against Granada. And Ronald Koeman is a year into his mandate now as a Barcelona manager. And I don't quite know what it is that he's trying to do with this side. I don't think he does. And and there's a nice circularity I guess that Bayern probably got him his job by thumping them 8-2 and Kike Setien being sacked because of that and now Bayern have thumped them again a little less um, by a less of a margin but it's it's brought the end of the Koeman reign for me I don't I would be astounded if we came back after the October international break and he was still in this post so a sad end for a club legend who did come in at a difficult time did try his absolute best, I think, but is just not cut out for this level of management based on what, what we're watching right now. Another example of the circle of life of managerial tenures, I guess. But another <laughs> in, uninspiring start come to the season comes in the form of Villarreal. The yellow submarine haven't managed to win any of their opening four games against Granada, Mallorca, Atletico Madrid and Espanyol, scoring just two goals in the process. It should be said that they haven't lost any of those matches either, and Unai Emery has a lot of credit in the bank after guiding Villarreal to their first major trophy. So there's little danger in terms of his job security. But we've been aware of their current struggles for a while. Why are they struggling so much to fix this issue? Yeah, and I mean, we spoke about sort of the drop-off at the end of last season for Barcelona. If you look at Villarreal and extend their league form back to last season... In their last 11 matches, it's three wins, four draws, and four defeats, which is not the form of a European contender, nor um, proper for a, for a European trophy winner. Only Real Valladolid and Levante, Valladolid who were relegated, Levante finished 14th and struggled throughout the year at various points, drew more games than them. And I mean, it's a, it's a trope that as you get older, you get more conservative, but I do have to say that for Unai Emery that seems to be the case there's just everything seems set up to avoid conceding goals as opposed to scoring them and 
if you if you take out Gerard Moreno as he's had to because of injury just recently it really sort of unmasks some of the issues facing this side as they go forward because his creativity and his his goal scoring prowess sort of papered over more draws if that makes sense that were that were in the post last season and he has more options now. He's got um, Bulai Dio's come in. Jeremy Pino's really sort of exploded in the last sort of few months. Paco Alcácer is, is fit again. And Arnold Jam Juma's come in as well. He looks very exciting. But as good as good as any as those options are, and I think they are as good as anyone outside of the top four and even, even top three, you could say, their build-up and, and the way they go about attacking teams that aren't coming onto them, it's just so painfully slow it's it's so deliberate every pass is telegraphed across the world and then the defense has has many seconds to set up for it and they say i'm gonna invoke another trope here they say familiarity breeds contempt but when there's no sort of clear effort to address a consistent issue then i think it really it can bring about a lot of frustration to a team and you can see that um, in this Villarreal side that just struggles so much to to break down teams that that really put men behind the ball. And, and that is where the contempt is coming from, for the fact that this issue is ongoing. There's been nothing, no visible effort to address it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a real struggle. And I think Unai Emery, as I say, is not under pressure, but he needs to do something to address this because... They have the players to do this. They have the players to move the ball quicker. But right now, they're, they're not going to get close to the Champions League if they continue like this. A few weeks ago, you wrote a piece on the Pure Football website about Atletico Madrid's title defence and the biggest challenges facing Diego Simeone this year. You mentioned the attack, the change of mentality necessary at Atleti. Those were the two major points of interest for Simeone, but so far, not so good. Yeah, van muy justos, they say in Spain. Uh, they're just scraping by, and they're doing so through a combination of mentality and sort of individual actions that have really sort of come through for them. And last night, as, as we're recording on the Wednesday, they, Luis Suarez came up really big against Getafe with two goals, one right at the end to win them the game. But if you look at the teams they've played, Celta, Villarreal, and we'll come on to that, Elche, Espanol, Athletic Club, and Hitafe. None of those teams, okay, Villarreal and Athletic are, are two of the better teams, but none of those are teams that should unduly worry Diego Simeone. But they've not looked convincing for more than a half of football for me. And against Villarreal, that was the best that we saw them. And there, there's a common theme to when we've seen Atleti be good this season, and it's when they have more balance. They started with Correa and Suarez up front in that game as the two main attackers and three out-and-out midfielders. And the difference between sort of the Villarreal game where they looked really good but managed not to win because Villarreal, credit to them that game, they did sort of offer a little more. After Griezmann came in, in the sort of at the end of the transfer window, they have struggled ever since then. And it's because they've looked so unbalanced. They've been playing too many attackers for me. And we, in that piece, I talked about Simeone trying to discombobulate this attack and find positions for everyone. One of the things that led them to win the title last season was their balance and the fact that you had Carrasco playing left wing back, which 
yeah, he's attacking for a left wing back, but you also had Hermoso, who's kind of a he, he could play left back if he needed to. So he he's a good fit having him there. And you had Suarez, who not as mobile as most strikers, but on the other hand, then you had Marcos Llorente coming from midfield, who is incredibly mobile and can run beyond. And I think the lack of balance in midfields and Simeone's attempts to shoehorn in these attackers is, is really, it, it's where their struggles come from. And I think the problem is if he can't sort out those teething issues soon, then they'll be too far behind Real Madrid to, to make it up. And I do think he'll sort it out, but the sort of lead time between that happening is, is what could define this title race. Excellent, Paolo. Thank you very much. And just listening to some of your Spanish pronunciation there reminded me that I'd, I'd been meaning to ask you if uh, you wanted to to head to the tapas restaurant on, or rather in Princess Square in Glasgow called Barca. Um, but but we, we, we can liaise afterwards. I've already mentioned it to our good friend, James Williamson, who seemed intrigued and keen for that. But I'll, I'll look forward to to that meal both for the food and for your pronunciation of some of the dishes on the menu uh, that was a really enjoyable episode to record thank you to Rudy Barlow and thank you to Michael Jones and thank you as always to you the listener all I will say is if you have enjoyed the episode and if you are enjoying the content please do consider rating us and subscribing if that's an option wherever you listen to your podcast it really helps us to grow and we would all really appreciate it we don't usually make such a plea but I just felt like I would do so uh, and, and, and we've done so so that little plea over and done with I will say thank you again for all your support I will wish you a happy fortnight and until next time goodbye